Okay, so 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learnt it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge... Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. An amazing truth that we kind of finished with at the end of the first session is that the God who is there, the God who is personal, interpersonal, who speaks to us, has spoken to us in his son. The word, God the word who spoke the world into being, became flesh for our salvation and fellowship with God. Come to 1 John chapter 1 and see how John speaks about this wonderful truth there. 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and we testified and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship with the, with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Our personal God has come into the world so that in that first century uh, time you could see, touch, hear, eat with, fellowship with God the Word become flesh for our salvation and our fellowship with God. It's an incredible thought. That in Jesus we found God, fully God, God the Son, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, became a human, fully human. 
could be seen and touched and heard, who ate and slept and tired and suffered and died. We did not find just a a person with a spark of divine power, but actually God the Son, God the Word, a divine person come to earth. Nor was he just seeming human, an illusion or wearing like a human exoskeleton, a sort of a shell of humanity. He was truly the man, Jesus Christ, born of Mary, grew in wisdom and stature as Luke describes, truly killed and bled and died on the cross, and yet fully, perfectly, sinlessly, pure and holy, God and man, the Lord Jesus. And what's true of Jesus, the word become flesh, Much of that is true then of this written word which testifies to Jesus. Just as we can say about Jesus that he is fully God the Son and fully the man, Jesus Christ, without that taking away from his divinity or or taking away from his humanity, yet pure and perfect. A lot of that same thing is true here of Scripture, that here the written word we have is not merely humans with an extra boost of God juice, but truly the words of God. But nor is it total dictation, as if it was uh, one John. John was sitting here and he heard God say, that which is from the beginning. That which is from the beginning. That we've seen... (laughs) It wasn't dictation either. Truly the words of John or Peter or Paul. Truly the living words of God. And yet, not in error, not flawed, not inadequate. And so it deserves our full attention and confidence and awe, study, obedience. For we expect to meet God in Scripture. Yeah? How we treat Scripture, as I said in the first session, is how we treat God himself. How we worship our God is by hearing and trusting and delighting and obeying his word. So we're going to look then at this written word in the second session. Right? There's two big headings, uh, but each of those have subheadings. The first big heading is um, how Scripture came to be, the formation of Scripture. Yeah? And there's three hub- subheadings there. And then secondly, we'll think about what is this thing Scripture is. Objective, living, written word. The formation of Scripture with three subheadings. And then secondly, the objective, living, written word. All right, let's see how we go with this. The formation of Scripture. Here we have it, the Holy Bible. What is it? How did it come to, come to us? Yeah? A great way of summarising it, um, uh, that, uh, again, I quoted Peter Adam in our first session, a great way he summarises it in his book, Speaking God's Word, is God has spoken, it is written, so preach the word. I think that's a good kind of way of summarising it. Um, We'll use slightly uh, different headings as we go along, but the first is similar. God has spoken. That's the first subheading for this heading. God spoke. So before scripture, God spoke. God the speaking God, as we saw. Not just a, a force or a being or a ground, but a personal God, an interpersonal God, who spoke the world into being, um, who then speaks into the world and acts in the world by his word. He shows his glory and his nature in everything he makes. And then he interprets it with his words. 
And so as he speaks to the first humans, he explains it to them. He says, here's the world I've made. Here's your role in the world. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. He interprets what he does. And so then when God comes to save in his covenant work, when he speaks promises. It's a covenant is really, it's a promise. He speaks promises and then he acts to fulfill his promises and then he, he kind of gives a commentary on his promises and says, that's what I did and that's why I did it and here's what I'm going to do next. And then he does that. Oh, oh sorry, but keep on hitting this. I've got to gesture less. Um, then he, um, well, I won't gesture less. I've got to aim better. Um, um, and then, then he acts again, and then he does the same thing. He says, here's what I'm doing, and here's what I did, and here's what I'm going to do next. You see? Um, God, uh, God speaks and acts. He, he acts by speaking. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God uh, said, let the waters part, and the waters parted. God said, let there be a plague upon Egypt, and there was. God speaks, and it is so. But he also speaks a promise to his people. He builds a relationship with people by promising to them. And when they trust his promise, he's now in what we call a covenant relationship where he speaks and we believe and then he acts on his promise to those who trust him and acts to fulfill his promise. And then as he's fulfilling his promise, he explains what he's doing and what he'll do next. You see, the the God that we meet in Scripture is not simply a fact file or an encyclopedia who gives us information. Here are my attributes. Here is my nature. Here is uh, the scientific makeup of this or that chemical. No, no, no. He's an active, personal, relating, saving, promising, covenant God. That's the kind of speaking he does. Yeah? And he's not just a force who acts and oozes out his mysterious will. No, he's a personal, relational, communicating, understandable person. God has spoken. God has acted. And the second subheading on this first point, then what he's spoken gets written down. It is written in the Old Testament, first of all. It is written in the Old Testament might be familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the great summaries of Christian belief. Um, it was a kind of a strange document. It was written by Anglicans and Baptists and Presbyterians when, uh, in the time of great upheaval in England. Um, and so it can really fairly represent a lot of those. A lot of what the Westminster Confession says, Baptists go, yep, that's what we hold to. Anglicans go, yep, that's what we hold to. Presbyterians, Reformed. It, a lot of what it says summarises... Uh, Christian belief. There are points of difference, but so much of it is just a helpful summary of the Bible. And, and here, in the, when it speaks about what the nature of the written word is, it summarises this well. This is from the first chapter of your Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, Of course, nature, the light of nature, and the works of creation and providence manifest the goodness and the wisdom and the power of God to leave people inexcusable. Right? That's Romans 1 we looked at. That everything God's made shows his glory. And so uh, we should not suppress the knowledge of God, but we're guilty since we do. But it goes on to say those things, the creation of the world, is not enough to give us knowledge of God as a person, of his will, of what is necessary for salvation. How do we know, what to, how do we know God? 
personally? How do we know how to be saved? Well, it goes on to say, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself, to speak, to declare his will to his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and the better propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishing and comforting of the church against corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan in the world, he committed his words wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture it is most necessary since other ways of revealing have now ceased. God spoke so that we can be saved and then so that it could be preserved and propagated and we could build a sure foundation for God's people, he wrote it down. You see an example of that in Exodus 24. You see the beginning of scripture coming into play in Exodus 24 at the time of the Ten Commandments, right? God speaks these words, he writes down on the the tablets, the Ten Commandments, but come to Exodus 24, And this is beyond just the ten words, the ten commandments. All these laws in chapter 20, 21, 22, 23. Into chapter 24. And we read in verse 3. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded in one voice, 24 verse 3 of Exodus, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then, here we go, wrote down everything God had said. Here's the beginning of scripture. <laughs> yeah? God spoke, God relayed his words, and then Moses wrote them down for the better preserving and propagating. You see again across in Joshua, if you come across Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then to Joshua, the end of Joshua, you see again the same kind of thing. Joshua 24, come across with me there, Joshua 24, verse 26. In verse 25, we read that Joshua made a covenant with the people and drew up decrees and laws. And in verse 26, Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Here's the forming of scripture. Well, Jeremiah 36, coming across to Jeremiah, a big jump across, um, but just to see it in another time in history altogether, now in the 6th century, Jeremiah 36, uh, verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll, Jeremiah 36 verse 2, and write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah until now. Perhaps then the people will hear the disaster I plan to inflict on them and so forth. And so then in verse 4 we read, Jeremiah calls Baruch, and while Jeremiah dictated the words that the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them down in a scroll. The forming of scripture as God speaks, God acts, God saves, God's promises. And so we get the books of Moses, by Moses, and perhaps some others who helped compile those, of those first five books, the former prophets who tell the history, Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings. Then the kings and the wise men write the Psalms, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Song of Songs, these wise writings and songs and Proverbs. And then the prophets like Jeremiah, the writing prophets, the later prophets who who spoke but also composed. And so gradually the Old Testament came into being. God spoke, God acted, God saved, God promised and it was written. 
for the better preserving and propagating. A gradual forming of a body of books of God. You see a great little moment of that in Daniel chapter 9. Come to Daniel 9 and we get a little example of a character within the Bible reading the Bible. <laughs> you see other examples, of course, in Nehemiah and Ezra and, um, uh, and Kings, the various uh, Josiah's discovering of the law. But there's an interesting one here in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's in Babylon. And he says, Daniel chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. And he goes on to say, he realizes that the Jerusalem will only be desolate for, four, uh, for 70 years, and so he prays for God to fulfill the promise. God, you spoke your covenant promise. You wrote it down in Jeremiah. Now here is Daniel. Here is Daniel in the Bible reading Jeremiah (laughs) and going, oh, here we go. Jeremiah 29, perhaps. Here we go. God, now I pray to you, fulfill the promise you made through your prophet Jeremiah. Jesus' ministry was conducted in an environment where everybody understood and accepted that God had spoken and it was written. And so Jesus affirms that. Matthew chapter 5, come across there. Matthew 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, his great uh, sermon begins by affirming the authority of the Old Testament word of God as this book of the covenant of God's promises to his people. He says, do not think, Matthew 5, verse 17, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, that's the way they spoke of the Old Testament Bible, the law, the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear. So important are these scriptures. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He, Jesus affirms these scriptures. They had to be fulfilled, he says. They must be fulfilled. Do you not know the scriptures and the power of God? Uh, the, you know, all through his ministry, he quotes again and again. An interesting one is in Matthew 19. Come to Matthew 19. A little bit topical, perhaps, with all this discussion about marriage and so forth, but... What's curious in Matthew 19, verse 4, is that as he speaks about marriage as something God made and God intended, he quotes Genesis and says, haven't you read, Jesus quoting Genesis, that at the beginning the creator, quote, made them male and female and said, quote, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The Creator said, Jesus said. Now, if you go back into Genesis 2, where Jesus is quoting from, this quote, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, this quote is not um, uh, in Genesis 2, and then the Lord spoke to them, saying, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to... No, no, it's the narrator of Genesis. It's not then God spoke from heaven and said, it's it's just the writer of the book. But that shows that from Jesus' point of view, it's not only the bits in quotation marks from God that are God's word. Do you see? 
It's not as if you could have a red letter Old Testament where all the bits f- directly from the Lord God were in red letters, and that's the only God bit. From Jesus' point of view, what the narrator of Genesis said, the Creator said. Do you see that? Very important. Yeah. What the Scripture says, God says. And that's the same view of, um, of the, the broader New Testament. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, um, uh, we actually have what the, kind of the scripture almost given, uh, being given the attributes of God. It's quite an interesting little passage. Galatians chapter 3, speaking of scripture, of the written words, 3 verse 8 says, The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. How does a a book foresee? A book just says. It doesn't see anything. But you see, because it's God's words in these written scriptures, as the scripture says something, it's God speaking, and so it's God singing. Isn't that interesting? The scripture is given the attributes of God. It's so closely connected to God. The scripture foretold. The scripture, uh, 9 verse 17, similarly... Quoting from the scripture in, its, um, uh, in the story about Pharaoh, it says, the scripture says to Pharaoh. <laughs> so what God does, the scripture does. So closely related in Jesus' mind and his apostles' mind, so closely related is this written word and God. This first heading, how are we going, Daniel, with these headings up here? Uh, spoken, written Old Testament. Now, sec- third point, a little subheading, it is written New Testament. All right, so that's the third heading there. It is written, Old Testament, look at that, the wonders of modern technology. Um, It is written in the New Testament. For Jesus came, God come to earth, he fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, God's will, God's covenant, the final act of salvation, dies for the sins of the world, rises as the Lord of life. His words are truth, his words are life. No one teaches the law like he does, they said. He takes the hidden things and makes them finally known. He says, you heard it was said, but I say to you. He says, you know the Sabbath? The law of God, spoken on those ten words to Moses, direct on the mountain, written on stone by the hand of God himself. You know the Sabbath? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, um, you know the the words of Moses, that uh, these foods make you unclean. And so don't eat the the hoopoe or the the coney or the uh, the shellfish. Well, I declare all foods clean. He comes with authority, divine level authority. Yeah. For he is the word. God the word. God the son. God the word. The active principle of the creation of the world, of the revelation of God, taking on human form. He is God, the word, become flesh. He speaks with his human mouth the words of God as a prophet. And he enacts the great act of God, his death on the cross for the salvation of the world, greater than the exodus from Egypt, greater than the victory of Joshua, greater than the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. 
greater than the rebuilding of the temple, than the return from exile, greater than any of these things is the great work, the final work of Jesus' death on the cross, the great word of God. But he didn't write anything down. Is that because uh, we don't need words anymore? All we need is Jesus? Well, no. Partly, we could say, he didn't write anything down because the whole Old Testament is about him. He came just to bring the, the final dot on the eye of all of God's, all the scripture is the revelation of Jesus. Finally fulfilled. Yeah? But more than that, as we've already touched on in John 14, 15 and 16, Jesus charged his apostles to write down his word, his work, his achievement. So come back to John 14, 15, 16. We've already looked at them a little to learn about the Trinity, but now see how this actually teaches us about the responsibility of the apostles to write down all that Jesus said and did. So 14, 26. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you, my apostles, all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. 15.26, when the Counselor comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, 15.26, he will testify about me and you must also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. And then in 16.12 to 15, he says the same thing. The spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. Uh, take from what is mine, make it known to you. His apostles were charged to record his words, his works. And so complete the Old Testament scriptures with what we now call the New Testament. And you find that all through the New Testament, this assumption that what they are writing... 1 Thessalonians, you received our word, not just as human words but as it really is, the word of God at work in you who believe. That's 1 Thessalonians 2. Or 1 Timothy 5. We just get quotations from the Gospels um, quoted as scripture in 1 Timothy 5.17. Or 2 Peter 3.16. Peter says, people distort the scriptures like the Apostle Paul's writings. All the scriptures people distort, including the Apostle Paul's writings. Just... The Apostle Paul's words are included as scriptures. That's how the miracles, really, to understand the miracles of the New Testament, we must see them not as every church and every Christian should expect supernatural things uh, in their church life and their personal life. I mean, you might. How wonderful if you have. Um, but there's no sense in which we ought to expect that every Christian and every church should expect to see miraculous things. One of the reasons why stories are told us in the Bible is because those stories are normal. And so we get told a story of someone praying and reading the Bible because God's people pray and read the Bible. That's a story told us because it's normal. But sometimes stories are told us in the Bible because they're abnormal. The reason they're in there is because this is the unusual history-changing moment. Yeah? Jesus doesn't die on the cross for the salvation of the world so that we can all die on the cross for the salvation of the world. 
Now, that, that was a, a, an abnormal, once-for-all work, wasn't it, you see? And so in the same way with the stories of the miracles of the apostles, we're not told those stories um, because we should then expect to see exactly the same thing in every single church and every single personal Christian life. You might. Wonderful. But the main function is for them to be testifying to the authority of their message, their prophetic evidences. Jesus, the Son of God, and his apostles, his messengers, evidenced by these signs of the apostles, as 2 Corinthians 13 puts it. And so by the end of the New Testament, we find this charge, come to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and the message there is not uh, wait for another word, wait for another prophet, wait for another um, message, but rather, at the end of the New Testament, uh, these final books, 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, what you've heard, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Or even further in Jude chapter 3, just before the book of Revelation, Jude chapter, chapter, Jude verse 3. um, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. God has spoken. He's acted according to his word. He has then spoken to explain his actions and has written it down. So now guard it, keep it, protect it, pass it on. We don't need an extra word, additional words, new words. We need to guard the word, read the word, study the word, listen to the word, pass it on. Christian ministers now are really functionally postmen. Our job is to deliver a message, not compose one. Yeah? We are the prophet who repeats a word from the Lord rather than delivers a new one. These writings of the New Testament were received in the early church, quoted in the early church, honoured in the early church from the very first days. And then slowly as these documents were gathered together over the, the early centuries of the church, there was finally mainly through the, the, um, the crisis of false teaching, they finally went, all these people are now writing other books and coming up with other Gospels. We need to write down somewhere a list of the books that we already use. <laughs> so it's written down. So, I mean, maybe you've done that if you help start a Sunday school or a youth group or, or a, some other kind of ministry or community group. When you begin it, right, you just do. But as new people join the team you realise we kind of need to write down what we just do so that we can delegate to others. And that's really what the early church councils. The final uh, full list uh, was compiled at the end of the 4th century at the Council of Carthage. But what what they saw themselves as doing was not creating the Bible, but was writing down what they already used, what was already common, what was already accepted, a list that we now have today of the New Testament scriptures, alongside the Old Testament scriptures, as the Bible, the book, the written word. Yeah, the formation of scripture, point one. Secondly, 
the objective, living, living, written word of God. The first heading here, the words of God, plural, the words of God. The scripture is the words of God. Not just um, superhuman words. Um, when we say inspired by God, some people might hear, especially out from outside the Christian community, they might hear that to mean, uh, oh, that, that musician was inspired. When Beethoven was inspired. Um, so also these authors were inspired. It was touched by God. No, no, it's more than that. It's not just empowered by God. God has chosen to use these words in a special way. Or, or not even that they testify to God's word or God's actions. No, it's stronger than that. Yes, inspired by God. Yes, empowered by God. Yes, testifying to God. But it's more than that. These are the words of God themselves. And so the passage that Phil read for us, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, all scripture, all of these writings, for that's what scripture means, all these writings are God-breathed. You could say they're not only inspired, they're expired. They're spoken out by God. They're God's words. They're the words of what God said, each one. And so that's why Jesus can quote the narrator of Genesis and say this is what the creator himself said. Yeah? Concepts, ideas, words, speech acts from God, by God, with his intent. The theologians call this the plenary inspiration of scripture. Maybe you've been to a work conference or something, you get paid to go to some hotel somewhere and... Um, and drink hotel coffee and eat hotel pastries and then go to a few expo tables and uh, maybe sit in on a few sessions about something or other. I don't know if you've had jobs like that. Um, and, and normally at those kind of work conferences, they'll have lots of small things and then they might have one or two everyone things where there's a, an address from the national head of the, whatever it is, sanitation industry board peak body or I don't know, whatever it is. Um, and and then that's, they, sometimes they call that a plenary session meaning it's the full group all comes together and you leave your expo stalls, you all come into a big room and you have a plenary session. Welcome along today, blah, 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 blah. Well, in the same way, plenary, full, fully inspired, every word, every page, fully inspired, expired from God. No gap between God's mind and God's intent and what we have in the written scripture. The words of God, subheading number one. Subheading number two, the objective word of God, singular. Objective, I mean, it just is the word of God. It's not, it doesn't need me subjectively to, to respond to it to make it the word of God. It's the word of God whether I like it or not, whether I believe it. Or not. And also, it's the word of God whether God chooses to empower it with converting spiritual force or not. Yeah? It doesn't need to become the word of God. It is objectively, as it is, God's message to the world. Doesn't need an extra work of God to make it the word of God. Doesn't need my belief to make it the word of God to me. People say that, don't they? Oh, that's good for you. That's the word of God for you. Which is one of the most politely rude things you could say, really, isn't it? It really means 
that's ridiculous, but, you know, I suppose you're slightly ridiculous and I, I want to be dismissively nice to you. <laughs> I mean, at best when someone says that, they're just trying to say, can we not have an argument at this barbecue, thanks? That's really what they mean, you know. Um, but when you do think about the expression, gosh, I believe this is God's word in human history for all humanity. Oh, that's nice for you. <laughs> um, but it's not that. It's, it's actually, you know, you know, if you were really socially awkward, you might say, oh, no, 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 it's not. It's got nothing to do with me. It's objectively the word of God for the world. For you, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah. And it's nice for you if you believe it, but it's nasty for you if you refuse it. <laughs> Don't do that at the next barbecue. Um, you see, there's an objectivity to it, yeah? It's not the same as becoming saved, although you need the word for salvation. It's not the same as having a relationship with God, although this is how you enter into relationship with God. It's not the same as illumination, the work by which the Spirit shines light into our dead hearts to see the glory of Christ. Although God chooses to use the speaking of Scripture in his work of illumination. It's not everything that God does. God has spoken and acted in many ways beyond the written word. Actually, the, did you know that um, 2 Corinthians should properly be called 4 Corinthians? Because as you read the letters of, to the Corinthians, um, they refer to letters in between that we don't have. There seems to be a letter before 1 Corinthians. You could call that 0 Corinthians. And then we have 1 Corinthians. And then 2 Corinthians refers to still another letter. We could call that 1.5 Corinthians. We don't have those, but they were the word of God through his apostle. So, so the Bible is not everything God has said and done. Yeah, Maybe you could put it this way. Um, the word of God is more than the Bible. Yeah, Jesus, when he was on earth, wasn't a Bible. It was the word become flesh in all his living and acting and doing. The word of God is more than the Bible, but the Bible is not less than the word of God. Does that maybe help? The word of God is more than the Bible, but the Bible is not less than the message of God to the world. The word of God. And even if I don't accept it, it's the powerful word of God to my judgment and condemnation. You know, in Matthew 13, when Jesus speaks about why he speaks in parables? At youth training days, you get told, and preachers' training days, you get told, Jesus, use stories. You should use stories to teach. Interestingly, in Matthew 13, when Jesus says why he spoke in parables, or when Matthew ex explains it, it's um, here we, we have, um, I speak in parables, Matthew 13, verse 13, so that those seeing they may not see, so that though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And so in them will be fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. <laughs> Jesus says, I speak in parables to be like riddles to condemn people in their hard hearts. So maybe not the best method for youth ministry. <laughs> or at least not the best justification for that method. Um, sometimes God's word is to you a word of... You are hardened in your sin and you will not receive my gospel and so my word will bounce off your hard foreheads to your further judgment. It remains the objective word of God even if it is not believed or received. 
And third sub-point here, it is the living word of God. The living word of God by which God still speaks. Now the great hymn, God has spoken by his prophets, spoken his unchanging word. It's a good summary of this sermon, really. Each from age to age proclaiming God, the one, the righteous Lord. They kept on proclaiming. God spoke through his prophets. Mid the world's despair and turmoil, one firm anchor holding fast. God is king, his throne eternal, God the first, God the last. And now God has spoken by Christ Jesus, Christ the everlasting son, the brightness of the father's glory with the father ever one. God has spoken by the word incarnate, God of God ere time began. Jesus was the light of light to earth descending and in Jesus Jesus was man, revealing God to man. And here's the thing, the living word, for God yet speaks by his spirit, speaking to the hearts of men. In the age-long word, expounding God's own message now as then. Through the rise and fall of nations, one sure faith yet standing fast. God's king, his word is unchanging, God the first, God the last. God still speaks. He speaks to us as we learn more from his word that we never saw before in our theology. He speaks as he converts and rebukes and corrects and confronts and trains in in preaching and teaching. He speaks as he hardens and angers and exposes the guilty conscience and incites defiance and rebellion. He speaks as in the words over cups of tea and bowls of soup and Words in the email and the text message and over the the, the dinner table by the bedside. He still speaks. That one word is not God spoke and we can listen in on it. God speaks still. He speaks today. It's a prophetic word that's still a living word. That's exciting thought that as we open the Bible, God is speaking to us. Today, God still speaks So that passage we had from 2 Timothy, chapter 3 and 4, how Paul says, look, here's my word, my teaching, my ministry, my um, apostolic word about Jesus. And the Old Testament itself is also the word that points to Jesus. That word is God-breathed, he says. And it is useful to teach, to rebuke, to correct, to train in righteousness, to thoroughly equip us. For all that God wants us to do. And so, he says to Timothy in chapter 4, use the word for the purpose it was given us. It's useful to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness to thoroughly equip you for every good work. So, in the light of that, and in the light of the return of Jesus, use the word. Preach the word. Correct, rebuke, encourage. With great patience and careful instruction. God now speaks by his word, to the world, actively speaks, powerfully speaks. The same word that spoke the world into being now speaks through the scriptures. Incredible. So then what does that mean? Four quick comments as we close. First, pay careful attention. Peter says, like a light shining in the dark. In 2 Peter. Pay careful attention to this precious word. It is the richest treasure. There's a miracle in our day. It is great riches. You know, there are people in the world who'd love to have all 66 books, wouldn't they? 
They have one or two in their language. And the rest they receive through tales from the preachers who came to them. They'd love to have what you have. <laughs> you, you got it and more. You've got it by Eugene Peterson and by the message and by the NIV and the ESV. You've got so many tools to help you grasp what God has said and appreciate it. Pay careful attention. Listen keenly. Like tuning in on a crummy radio somewhere on the east coast just out of reception to that final, final few seconds before the siren. See what the outcome will be. Pay careful attention to Scripture. Second, seek to be reminded of Scripture. It's a big theme in the Bible. Be reminded. You know, it's a troubling thing, you know, when you meet uh, a, a Christian, clearly an immature Christian, who says something like, oh, I've heard all that before. You know, oh, how, you know, what do you think today about church? Or how did you find Bible? Oh, yeah, heard all that before. Yeah. <laughs> you know, got anything new? You know, I mean, I need to be reminded of things. The Apostle Peter says, as long as I'm alive, I'll just keep reminding you of what you already know. <laughs> we need to be brought back to the foundation. We'll see more of this in the final session. Get perspective. We need God to keep bringing us back. Bring it to mind. Recall it again and again. Go over those things. Warning signs should go off when I begin to become flippant. Uh, bored with God's word. That's a warning sign. That's a spiritual alarm bell there. That's a go in and see your spiritual GP. You need to get that checked out, mate, sort of thing. If that starts to happen. That's not clever at that point. That's, that's deeply alarming. That's irreverent. God, you are boring. No, no, no. Dwell on these riches and savour them again and again and again. Yeah? Imagine it saying, look, mate, I love you. Can you just not talk? <laughs> Honey, darling, I, I really love you. Just, just be quiet, won't you? I just find you boring. <laughs> but I love you. And yet we're like that to God. <laughs> Appalling. Thirdly, our ministry and our conduct as church must be Bible-centred, word-centred. Surely... That goes without saying, doesn't it? That Christian spirituality, Jesus' spirituality, is wordly spirituality, scriptural. It's word-shaped. Yeah? So what we look for in youth group and men's groups and Bible studies and church and spiritual meditation retreats is the word of God to dwell in us richly, to sound that word, study that word, sing that word, repeat that word. You know, sometimes I go to churches, we have students from different churches and might go to a baptism at a church and sometimes you stand up and you'll sing and, and I find myself going, I don't even know if I can sing that. First of all, I don't know what it quite means. Lord, 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 I'm amazed at you, Lord, as I baptised in your fire and you raised me higher, Lord. Banner is love, O oh, Lord, 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 I worship you or something. Firstly, I just don't understand what, it, what it, the verse means. And secondly, it's, it's very rarely mentions Jesus, let alone his cross work or his grace or anything distinctively Christian at all. Just a series of quasi-biblical phrases. Baptism, Lord, higher, lift, raise, banner, love, grace, worship, 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 Lord. There should be something in our instinct that says this is just almost exhaustingly unsatisfying. 
for goodness sake, we've got the riches of God's word and we're singing none of it. And then we sit through a sermon that bounces off it like a trampoline to then know deep in the word, sink deep in the word. And last of all, we should be those who strive to submit to the word, to tremble at it, to, as we treat the word as as we treat God. In some of the um, cultural discussions that I see bouncing around on places like Facebook and so on, um, uh, what really seems to be uh, a common thing amongst some is to, uh, oh, I heard Mikey said this in that sermon, or I heard some Christian said that, and, uh, and rather than going... Let's see where they got that from in the Bible and see if what they said was true. I'm hearing a lot of Christians now go, oh, I heard... So there was one recently where uh, in a high-profile conference, the speaker spoke about um, from 1 Corinthians 11, that tricky passage about women and head coverings, and a lot of the conversation was like, what I think is blah, 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 blah. What I think is blah, blah... And, And there was no sense of, well, what does the word say? And and if that that person who was speaking on the passage was seeking to teach the word, we should honour their intent and actually join with them in the desire, even if we might disagree on the details. But sadly, often, we're not doing that anymore. At least I'm seeing a lot of Christians go, I heard someone say this about homosexuality or about men and women or about church or about the Holy Spirit. I think, and off we go. Let's be people who turn back to the word together, strive together to come round the word and like those noble Bereans, test it and search it to see what is true. Let's pray. We praise you for your great treasure, the scriptures, our Lord God, and we pray that they may be uh, living words of light and salvation for us. The scriptures are your word. They are living and powerful, but we pray they may be living and powerful for us and for our churches, for mercy, for salvation, for transformation, for our joy. By your spirit, use your word to renew us and refresh us day by day. Rule your church and our lives by your word and use your word even here in the north of Tasmania for the salvation of many by your powerful grace. In the name of Jesus and by his spirit we pray. Amen.